Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. On today's episode, we're going to discuss R&B further. Um, up until this point, we've been working our way up and a lot of the artists would be categorized in the jump blues and beginning of the rock and roll category, early R&B. Um, we will also be discussing a couple more DJs, the last radio DJs on our list, um, and kind of how that's built up to this point. And since there are our last DJs, we'll also talk about the overall contribution of black DJs to not only the music industry, music, but also to um, some of the development of actual genres like hip hop, you know, specifically. Um, and then we'll talk about, we really get into actual R&B artists. It's kind of made the full conversion now to R&B and we'll get into that as well as um, continued, there's still some continued uh, overlap. Um, we'll get into it. I mean, as we'll discuss, the uh, R&B genre itself is a little bit, um, in some ways, is industry created, as is uh, rock and roll. And even though there's a clear sound that makes up R&B and rock and roll, you can kind of see, um, as we'll discuss, um, why, uh, you know, you can kind of pick and choose or um, it doesn't necessarily uh, follow, it's not necessarily consistent as when what is termed R&B, as we've kind of already discussed, and what's term, termed R&Rock and Roll, and then the following genres as well, it kind of gets a little bit murky. And so I think really for the past couple of episodes we've kind of been in some murky waters um, trying to, you know, we've discussed what might be the first rock and roll song, what might be the first R&B song. Um, but now, once we get into some of these artists we'll discuss today, it's when you hear it, when you listen to their music, it's like, oh yeah, this is what I would con consider R&B and maybe rock and roll. Um, but it's pretty clear cut at this point as far as I think listeners are concerned. Um, so to start off, on the timeline, we start with, uh, on the terminology side, there is um, the two um, items are about um, sort of the industry shift from what was being labeled as race music to R&B. So first on the list, you can see it talks about how RCA, Victor, which was RCA, um, the RCA company, um, RCA Victor specifically would refer to, at the time, you know, records, vinyl was still the primary form of uh, medium um, used to consume music. And of course, radio is becoming bigger and bigger, so in a lot of ways, people were using radio as a primary consumption at the time, but really during those times, because of, you know, the limitation of, uh, you know, radio was still limited as far as the ability to, uh, you know, 
play endless amounts of music and to maybe play the music that you wanted to hear um, or you know be more single oriented as it as it really always was you know it was a, a form of promotion and that's really what radio has always been but I think at some point radio became so prevalent where a lot of people only consumed radio especially with the mobility and the ability to take it wherever you went and so at this point um, you know people are still primarily consuming their music um, through records but they may have been ex first exposed to the artist um, by the radio um, so yeah RC RCA changes their uh, marketing term from race music to blues and rhythm in 1948 and as we sort of discussed race music was a term um, that was used way back in the 1920s um, starting with one of our first artists and it was supposed to basically be um, black music or black artists making music for black people and you know that was more or less true you know obviously the reason that it's being changed is because at this point you know what is becoming R&B and what is R&B um, has expanded what you know far beyond just the black community even though it's consistently been the whole the, this whole time the primary consumer but now um, you know people you don't as a marketing um, approach you don't necessarily want to be marketing race music and you have a large white audience buying these albums because now all of a sudden there's kind of a you know the marketing conflict you know I'm, um, you want to brand it in a way where it's open to everybody and you're not just having uh, white people consuming what's termed uh, race music because you know obviously you know back back when they first created the term um, you know, race music was a clear delineation. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you know what this is. This is this music was apparently made by black people for black people, and you know that was a way for the industry to market that to black people because at the time they thought that you know that that's who would be interested in. They didn't really think that the white audience would uh, consume it the way. They ended up consuming it, at least during those times, you know. And now times have changed to the point, especially with radio, um, where, you know, just, just a much wider audience is consuming it, even though up to this point, you know, it's being, white audiences were involved the entire time, but now it's just gotten to a point where it's kind of becoming a market conflict. And then around the same time, um, the, the industry really also adopted that term specifically uh, on the list as Billboard and um, actually um, Jerry Wexler uh, was the one who coined was given credit with uh, coining the term rhythm and blues and Jerry Wexler is known as a he was a writer um, for Billboard but he was even more well known for um, producing Aretha Franklin later on and uh, I guess turning around her career more or less and he produced some other artists as well 
So, so yeah, that's the thing about R&B, as you can see, um, and that's the reason it's on the timeline, is because, you know, the switch to the term R&B was industry-motivated. It's not necessarily, you know, what artists were calling it. Um, you know, I think with uh, many of the terms, you know, they may or may not have been already used in, by the artists and the communities who consume the music, um, but the primary switch was industry-related. Um, for Billboard, it was, you know, more of a political thing um, as far as seeing the term race record or race music as being outdated. But um, once again, I think to some degree, you know, it was marketing slash um, optics and not necessarily the recognition of the evolving musical form. So it's just something that's interesting to uh, take note of and it'll be a reoccurring theme throughout R&B and rock and roll it already has been as we've discussed with some of our previous artists talking about jump blues and you know as we kind of move through the timeline how some of those songs sound a lot like R&B and some of them have rock and roll elements as well so uh, you know something just to keep in mind um, and further expanding on that um, just looking at the R&B charts and how they kind of evolve specifically with Billboard um, I think it's a pretty good indicator because I think when you talk about genre you know all of the genres have not only like the musical structure but there's also a cultural component and what you know who, how people view at least especially from the industry perspective how people view the people who are going they think are going to consume the records um, so that kind of all plays together um, but I think specifically in this case when you look at the R&B charts as they've evolved um, on Billboard um, kind of just shows you it, it just makes you think about genre I think because I think a lot of times um, especially you know nowadays when there are so many genres um, and different categories you know you don't people will say a genre as if they're defining you know a certain type of music and and historically I think sometimes we don't think about how those genres each genre was kind of delineated or separated and put into a category and um, that's one of the primary reasons well not it is a, a reason why um, the timeline is structured in the way it is and why there's a specific emphasis on like the blues as being the foundation because as we move forward you know the blues was really a term you know used by the community and by the musicians and it was labeled by the industry as race music so now you know you're not necessarily acknowledging the blues name at any point to a certain to a certain extent now you're kind of saying rhythm and blues so it's in there um, but now we're really getting into industry labels now that it's been brought from you know originally the rural blues was you know originally a very rural uh, musical tradition and you know moved into cities um, 
urban atmospheres and that's also where you know the industry resides and so all of a sudden you know it's becoming a bigger and bigger um, business and uh, you know getting more and more popular so now the industry has shifted from race music to calling it R&B um, and it's not necessarily what uh, the creators of the music would have named it and it's not necessarily you know recognizing a clear shift into R&B the sound um, that's why you know with rock and roll this you know it's all created retrospectively as far as people just just you know they're like among the music aficionados or you know people who are really into it when you talk about rock and roll there's like a huge list of songs over history over the history of like which is the first rock and roll song because there's you know different elements um, of rock and roll you know People will say like back to the 1920s even um, I think once we get on our timeline I think it's a lot you know in the 1950s as far as what we consider rock and roll I think it's pretty clear-cut by then uh, but I think part of that whole battle is just you know it's if you take a step back it's it's kind of like you know, and the reason we focus on the, the timeline the uh, blue lineage is called the blue lineage is just because the blues was intentional and then as you take a step back it's almost a natural evolution this whole growth into what we get to in the end of uh, the timeline which is hip-hop um, if you just recognize it from a cultural and uh, musical perspective it's almost a natural evolution into what it became uh, versus kind of the industry kind of categorizing it and doing what it wants to to market uh, music as time goes on and when you look at the R&B charts it really um, I think highlights this and uh, um, so early in with Billboard uh, in the 1930s um, the what I what over time evolved into the R&B and hip-hop charts it started out as the Harlem Hit Parade uh, that was the first label um, that people will ascribe that you know continue to evolve into what we know as the R&B hip hop charts today, um, which was uh, which was specifically the Harlem Hit Parade was specifically referring to Harlem at the time, and just because um, in Harlem, uh, which was also where you know Tin Pan Tin Pan Alley was, which we talked about very early on, and so that whole area was just a place where uh, you know music. The industry was thriving in general and you know you have to think about during that time with the limitation of inter you know communication between cities and the United States in general you know the big markets are going to be the market that kind of defines everything and so in this case in New York you know you have Harlem and that was where for um, the black or african-american music scene everything was uh, really evolving and there's a significant um, presence of just artists in general including music and so the Harlem Hit Parade uh, chart you know was the first kind of iteration of charting and documenting you know what was uh, a hit at the time and then after that uh, it moves to race music or race records as we've talked about um, now on Billboard 
race music started first being released as race music back when we first talked about uh, W.C. Handy and uh, Mommy Smith. Um, but Billboard didn't really take that on until 1945, which was only like a short while before it switched over to R&B. Um, so, so from 1945 to 1949, we have race records. And then in 1949 or 48, as we just talked about, um, they added uh, art, rhythm and blues charts. And then it um, switched to rhythm and blues sides and keep getting various, you know, between cycles between hot R&B sides and singles and different names until we get to 1969 where it switches to uh, best-selling soul singles. And of course soul is, um, people consider soul differently. Um, some people consider it as like a specific sound um, closely related to R&B. Some people consider it as a specific um, influence of gospel on R&B. A lot of gospel singers came over um, once R&B really got going and became uh, very successful and they were more so considered to be soul singers. Some people just consider that time period of R&B as soul. Um, some people cons just consider soul as a subgenre of R&B, um, which is like one of the main reasons why soul isn't on a timeline is just because, you know, R&B really encapsulates it. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of subgenres could have been included um, within the timeline, but uh, we try to stick to pretty core, um, the core genres. And so we have the best selling soul singles, we have hot soul singles, and then in 1982, it's the chart switched to hot black singles. And so, you know, it's just important to keep in mind, uh, you know, kind of this transition um, and evolution of the chart. You know, you're kind of going from race records, and now we're back to hot black, hot black singles, which, you know, it's very race-based. And so the whole evolution of the chart, um, you know, it's almost as if it's sort of a... We know who the audience is, and we're just changing sort of these placeholders as far as what, the, what we're going to call it. And then, so in 1990, it switches back to hot R&B singles. And then finally in 99, it becomes hot R&B and hot and hip hop singles and tracks. And so, you know, at that point, you know, it's interesting that's 1999 because hip hop is, you know, well, you know, has been developed and been popular for a while now. It's, you know, well into the, the existence of hip hop. And so, once again, you know, just like with R&B, you can debate um, what the first R&B track is. You can debate what the first rock and roll track is. I mean, at this point, with in 1999, I think everybody, you know, it's a different, it's a different world at this point where, you know, um, a genre doesn't need necessarily need the validation of the industry to be, you know, be called what it is. And hip hop kind of was defined is was defined by the artists and people community who made it you know hip-hop is a whole culture and similar with funk we'll talk about funk later but funk kind of just kind of gets glossed over a little bit um but even though it's the foundation of hip-hop it's interesting that's a 
that's something we'll get into. It's an interesting discussion. But the, the point of it is, is just to look at the how the R&B charts, or however you want to call it, um, evolved into the R&B and hip-hop um, charts, um, and just taking notice that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily, when we talk about genres, it's not necessarily that these artists came and were creating new genres, it's more so that music was evolving naturally and then people were kind of naming it as it became commercially viable. Um, you know, another area you could talk about is the Grammys in reference to genres. I mean, I think the Grammys, you know, is kind of, is kind of messy. Um, because, you know, with the Grammys, they're bringing in, like, a committee. And so it gets really political. So not, not only do you have genres and... Um, you know, genres and all these different sub-genres and categories. Um, but you also have a committee, so things get altered there as well. Um, and I know with the... With the Grammys, you also get, they also have, I don't know if they still have the urban categories. But, you know, you get into the same thing, basically. Um, it's just a little bit more convoluted, in my opinion. I don't really pay close attention to the Grammys anymore, so I can't really comment on it in depth. But, you know, it's just, when you just look at these uh, placeholders or categories, it just, you know, it's something... To, it's an interesting discussion, something to think about, um, especially as we move through the timeline. There'll be more instances where we see uh, music that kind of sounds like maybe it could be in a different category. Um, and then we're seeing music that kind of exists before it's supposed to exist type situation. Uh, so that was just an important note, I think, as we begin to enter into what is kind of the acknowledged um, time of R&D and why, you know, the history of that and the evolution of genres. Um, so first on the list for artists or DJs, I guess in this case, is a DJ. Um, it is Nat D. Williams. And uh, Nat D. Williams, um, is uh he was from Memphis. Um also he was also known as the voice of Memphis. And he was um and one thing that I will note that is interesting is that a lot of the artists slash DJs that we have talked about up to this point, so many of them um you know we, we focus a lot on the migration, the Great Migration and the second great migration. So now, as you kind of seen, this is a process that has been taking place um, for a while now, and you can see that uh, in Nat D. Williams' case specifically, he was born in Memphis, which is obviously a city, and so many of the previous um, artists, most of the artists, I think, you know, I think T-Bone Walker was born, no, I think he was born outside of uh, the city, and I think he moved to Dallas. Um, so, so many of uh, the artists um, were born, you know, like on Cher 
share as sharecroppers, parents their parents were sharecroppers or they born onto plantations in rural areas and now you'll see more artists um, who are just born in the city and I think something just to pay attention to is um, how that kind of shapes their trajectory and kind of the influences um, that they have you know being born right into a city center and then of course you know these are times where um, African-American communities were uh, having a tough time you know as you know many African black communities and cities still are but at the same time it was a time where there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of uh, families are thriving and that was the case with um, Nat, Nat D. Williams and his family um, be living in Memphis specifically the Beale Street area which was a thriving um, black community at the time um, and so he uh, so yeah so his parents were pretty uh, successful and that was kind of uh, one of the and successful in terms of you know city life um, and that kind of I think set him up a little bit better in a lot of ways than uh, than some of the previous um, individuals on in our timeline. Um, you know, it's not a universal statement. There were definitely um, other individuals. I guess you know, speaking specifically about W. C. Handy um, and Louis Jordan. Um, but I think you know it's somewhat undeniable that if you come up in the city there's just and you have some success or your parents have some success that you know just because of the opportunities that are already present in the city you uh, get a good opportunity to um, you know kind of take a different trajectory than some other people who might you know have moved to the city in their adult life um, and kind of what they had to do in their traje trajectory you know once again not a universal statement you know just because you're born in a city doesn't you know I mean, you necessarily have a leg up, as we've talked about, and as 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 we will talk about. You know, there's a lot of struggle in the city as well, um, but just a different atmosphere, a different uh, starting point. Uh, but in Nat D. Williams' case, uh, he went to Columbia Univer University, and then he went to Northwestern. Um, I think for a graduate his graduate uh, degree, uh, he was working as a editor and journalist after. Um, after school, um, you know, he specifically worked for the Memphis World, which was a publication um, in 1931. And you know, with his educational background and just his uh, natural creative creativity and uh, way of looking things, um, you know, he was really able to kind of hone his craft and uh, mix uh, politics um, with humor and kind of shape that and that kind of set up set him up really well to become a uh, DJ and um, you know as we kind of talked about previously newspapers and radio as it was for everybody at the time you know, those were the primary mediums um, but for the black community specifically you know now you know there were ways to really directly connect with the community um, in ways that you know just were not possible before I mean, especially in urban centers, you know, if you don't live in a city, it's hard to, even for newspapers, to distribute, um, you know, to mass distribute something to the community. Uh, radio kind of changes that. 
Uh, but in the case uh, for Nacky Williams working at uh, the Memphis World, you know, he definitely uh, took advantage of being able to, you know, kind of build up his uh, reputation and platform as a writer first, um, working in that, the Beale Street Memphis area. And he also started to work as an MC. He emceed at uh, the Palace Theater. And you know, that's where he was able to hone those skills as well as a DJ. So um, in Memphis, there was a radio station called WDIA. Um, and they had just started. And they were struggling to uh, you know, really break into... Uh, they're struggling to have any success. They started playing um, country and western music, and I was really working out. And so they, you know, kind of, you know, looking around them and realizing and seeing, you know, the rising popularity of, um, you know, the black community, the black radio market. We talked about Al Benson uh, last episode in Chicago, and you know he had a lot of success. And seeing that, you know, they wanted to try to break into the black radio market. And so they, uh, they hired uh, Nat D. Williams and they were decided to switch their primary music to R&B. You know, and of course, as we just talked about, R&B was an all-encompassing music for black music at the time. Or an all-encompassing, R&B was an all-encompassing term for black music at the time. Um, which was really just, uh, would have just been mostly, uh, what was either jump blues, R&B, or blues, um, and some, and gospel. Um, and Nat D. Williams, uh, became the first black DJ in Memphis, and I believe he was the first black DJ below, you know, of the South, essentially. You know, in reference to the Mason-Dixon line, um, which is basically, you know, the South. Um, so he started out there with an evening program. Um, one note is that we'll talk about later, but B.B. King also worked as a DJ at WDIA. And, um, you know, his success... Nat D. Williams' success um, led them to hire um, other black DJs, and they became the first um, all-black DJ radio station um, at the time. Um, you know, it wasn't well. We'll talk about that later. The first black-owned radio station, but they were the first all-black DJ radio station, that was in 1949. Um, so Nat D. Williams, he caused, he caused a little bit of uh, controversy just because, as we discussed, you know, he had formal um, education in journalism, so he was uh, pretty well-versed as far as, you know, pulling out, pulling politics and, you know, integrating that to his work as a DJ and infusing humor, you know, he's a very popular DJ. And because of that, when he would talk about, you know, various political um, and social issues, uh, you know, it caused a little bit of a stir. 
um, just because they were not necessarily, you know, the popular mainstream areas of discussion, um, especially uh, being in the South and Memphis, there was definitely a lot more uh, racial uh, tension. Um, so there was, you know, he got hate, hate calls and threats, you know, different retaliation. Um, and some of it was about around the music that he was playing. Um, you know, a lot of music for the time, R&B music for the time was seen as having vulgar and, you know, just inappropriate, uh, you know, sexualized, just content that was frowned upon by um, many people. And so a lot of it was that. and. Some of it was just the social issues he talked about. Um, he also uh, talked a lot about uh, African American history, just going over, you know, some of the recent history and some of the pioneers and uh, you know the evolution of uh, black culture up until that point. And he talked about the news, uh, different social to topics as we as we. Uh, as I mentioned, he had a program that was called Brown America Speaks, in which he uh, talked about the civil rights music movement, talked about police brutality, and uh, other political issues, and um, and that that caused controversy. I think the main controversy was around the music. Uh, you know, cer certainly. Uh, talking about the civil rights movement, police brutality, um, was definitely something that was, you know, a, uh, a little bit more of a progressive stance and not appreciated by as many people. But I think the, the music was something that people specifically, because it was something that permeated, um, you know, just American culture in general. And people saw it, a lot of people saw it as a threat um, just because of, the things that I said before, as far as the con some of the content of the song, which once again, as I mentioned before, you know, if you listen to the songs, it seems very mild, but I think it, you know, kind of relates it to some of the um, hip hop or rap music, you know, of today, um, as far as you know, some of the controversy that has surrounded that over the evolution of hip hop. You can go back to blues, as we talked about before, and similar controversy comes up as far as content. So it's just a reoccurring theme as uh, new genres within um, black music come out. There's a, it's usually met with some, some form of controversy. And in Memphis, uh, specifically in uh, response to Nat D. Williams and WDIA, uh, there was a point where actually police um, broke into, uh, into black-owned businesses and were destroying uh, records that, you know, were by the artists that uh, were being played on radio, you know, records by um, records, you know, the same music by various artists who would have been played on the radio just because, you know, as I said, there was a concern of, you know, this permeating culture and I'm specifically black-owned businesses. Because there are businesses, there was, um, you know, there's a little bit more gray area as far as what actions you could take to, you know, break into a business versus breaking into homes. 
um, and I think black owned businesses of course were more symbolic and more they were you know symbols of black progress in general and you would uh, it was assumed that you know somebody who was a black business owner in a lot of cases is kind of within this whole uh, larger movement of you know pushing for social and civil rights and uh, moving up you know in the in the in America in the um, moving up economically um, so you know that was a continued thing but overall you know for for uh, Nat D. Williams uh, he was you know well liked um, very popular and you know as far as the radio broadcast broadcasted um, so around Tennessee and nearby um, cities that would they would have re they would have reached which would have been you know a number of the uh, cities urban areas that were kind of near to that Mississippi uh, River um, region. So that was, that's Nat D. Williams, um, you know, we talked about Al Benson already, um, and now we have Nat D. Williams, and of course, way back we talked about Jack, Jack L. Cooper, but all these guys were just um, important figures in the evolution of, you know, not, I mean, Jack L. Cooper, of course, specifically was very important for the evolution of radio and music being played on radio in general, and of course, black radio, um, which is, uh, became a thriving field uh, because of these early DJs, and it was also very important to uh, get the music that wasn't being played prior out to communities, um, so it could con be consumed and, uh, you know, largely responsible for the continued growth of these genres that we're talking about. Um, oh yeah, one note that I missed um, as I'm looking at my notes is, uh, you know, to sort of um, appease uh, the negative um, concerns about the music, um, Nat D. Williams would like either laugh or talk over some of the inappropriate parts of songs. Um, and, and as a form of censorship so uh, you know that would have been like the first form of you know what we if you listen to the radio now or you know a lot of different you know CDs or you know songs however you consume your music um, that would be a uh, you know the equivalent of people either like beeping out uh, certain lyrics or phrases or you know just inserting different words into it um, so you know, that was a uh, that was just the the times you know he was well liked I think you know definitely more positive than negative but at the same, same time you know being especially being uh, in Memphis and being in the south you had to I think navigate some of the political and social issues a little bit more carefully um, just because, as we talked about, you know, some of the repercussions were a little bit more severe in a lot of cases. So uh, the next artist on our list is Joseph Dayton Gibson Jr.
um, also known as Jockey Jack, also known as Jack the Rapper. Um, Jack the Rapper is, you know, the most recent name he would have gone by. Um, so maybe that is probably the, maybe the more likely name that you may have heard of. Um, but I'll refer to, you know, as I'm talking about him, I'll refer to uh, kind of the name that applies to the time period. So hopefully that's not too confusing. But he was born in Chicago. Um, his mom was a teacher. His dad was a doctor. And so sort of similar to Natty Williams, um, there was an expectation of university. I don't know if Natty Williams was expected to go to university, but in this case, um, uh, Joseph Dayton Gibson Jr., he went to uh, Lincoln University, um, and he was more interested in performing arts, which is not exactly what his parents were wanting him to do, but that was his interest, so that's what he did. And in the 1940s, um, he acted in what was the first all-black soap opera, which at the time would have been on radio. Um, it was called Here Comes Tomorrow, and it was on WJJD uh, Chicago. And uh, this was also, WJJD Chicago was also where Al Benson um, was broadcasting. And, um, you know, this... Uh, that kind of led it led to other um, broadcasting gigs, and eventually, uh, his friend's father um, was well. He he was familiar with the broadcasting business. He wasn't a broadcaster, and uh, he was interested in buying a station, a, ba a failed station in uh, Atlanta called WERD, and you know his friend you know, kind of uh, reached out to uh, Joseph Dayton Gibson and was, uh, <clears throat> and, um, you know, invited him as his father purchased WRD to uh, be a broadcaster since, you know, he had experience in it. And so, you know, he uh, broadcasted at what was now the first uh, black-owned radio station and along with his friend, um, he uh, started uh, DJing there as uh, Jockey Jack, and um, that station uh, became really well known for playing uh, the top hits uh, by black artists. Um, you know, as we mentioned with Al Benson, there was a, t a period, time period where uh, broadcasters were able to uh, choose the songs that were played on the radio. So this was uh, during that, still during that area for uh, for a little while, and um, you know. One of the things, you know, with Matthew Williams, Al Benson, and Jockey Jack was, uh, you know, just this whole uh, growth of black radio was uh, big just because of the hits. You know, they're playing music that wasn't previously played, um, but also, uh, you know, just, just the kind of appeal of uh, the black DJ was, you know, really unique um, to the market. Um, you know, number one, you know, you were able to connect to uh, the black community in a different way, in a more effective way. Um, you know that just hadn't been hadn't been done before. Um, you're, you're playing music that is uh, culturally relative. You're also talking about issues that are culturally relative. And in addition to that, you know, it, it was popular um, in uh, 
in white communities as well, or you know, just mainstream America, just because you know, just offered a, a new angle. Um, you know, there was just a lot of, and with black DJs, um, there's just a lot more. Uh, you know, the the cadence, the wit, you know, just the whole approach to radio was, you know, not all that different from black music, in which you know, a lot of humor, wit. Um, the whole style was, you know, completely different and to a lot of people, you know, was more um, engaging and exciting and um, so a lot of people tuned, tuned in for that re reason as well and that was how kind of black radio transcended, uh, you know, just the black community and, and as a whole, you know, helped uh, black music, you know, become what it is today um, as well as, you know, just really popularizing um, black music and the culture um, at that time. Um, so uh, he moved, Jockey Jack moved to multiple different radio stations. Um, you know, he made a big name in Atlanta, but uh, he, when he went to uh, Louisville um, at WLOW, or sorry, WLOU, um, he just became even more and he really like laid into the Jackie Jack persona and kind of, you know, transcended the radio station at that point and, you know, that's when Jockey Jack was really known as Jockey Jack. Um, and so that, you know, really opened it up to just, you know, as, you know, as this is happening, black radio was really getting bigger and bigger. And so, you know, him being a bigger than, uh, you know, the black radio or market really helped him to uh, progress his career and he uh, moved to some other stations um, in Miami um, he was able to become a, a program director um, of the station and after that uh, he he went back to WRD um, in 1954 and this time he was uh, returned as a program director and you know, at the same time, um, you know, the civil rights movement, civil rights was becoming a bigger, bigger issue. And so he focused a lot more of his attention during that time to uh, to social activism. You know, in addition to continuing to expand, um, you know, WRD and the the uh, his audience or their audience. Um, so he highlighted a lot of social issues and, you know, just issues that were occurring in black neighborhoods, um, you know, black radio at the time, um, specifically in the case of WERD, because it was located in Atlanta, which had, you know, a pretty thriving black community. Um, you know, the black radio offered a unique way to, you know, highlight issues in a, you know, in a mass way, reach the masses, um, and kind of, you know, all at once, um, kind of coordinate a response to certain things that might have been going on in a black neighborhood or highlight injustices or, you know, concerns. Um, you know, the, you know, this was a time where, you know, radio was big, but of course, you know, not, it's not like today where some radio stations are syndicated across the, you know, entire nation. In this case, you know, it's big. You're a lot able to reach a pretty large population, but it's still kind of a, a community, uh, situation in which, uh, you know, I know there are, you know, one example is, um, you know, in some cases, you know, if 
if uh, the community came to the station or called in the station and said, you know, so-and-so is struggling uh, this month to pay their rent, you know, people would come together and, you know, pull the money and get people's rent paid. So, you know, just, you know, Black Radio was really a tool and it was definitely a tool that evolved and was utilized in the civil rights movement as well, um, besides just putting out um, and expanding, uh, you know, black music and promoting, promoting that. Um, and so speaking of the civil rights movement, um, his station was uh, right next to um, the uh, Southern Christian uh, Leadership Conference, uh, which was, you know, MLK's uh, uh, headquarter office or one of his offices. Um, so, you know, that was also used as a tool. The radio station was, um, you know, if he worked with Martin Luther King and also, uh, you know, if there was a sudden announcement or something, you know, that needed to go out right then, you know, um, Martin Luther King or members were able to just kind of pass that over to the radio station and make that announcement immediately. So that was a, you know, that was a huge plus and also, you know, a big tool in, uh, in the civil rights movement. Um, so, you know, Jockey Jack's career, you know, really spans um, way beyond, uh, all the way through the timeline, basically. And so, uh, he not only was a DJ and a program director, you know, also contributing to social issues and civil rights issues, um, he also put a lot of his time and focus into just developing you know, black radio, eventually, you know, television, television as well, but, you know, black industry and trying to kind of expand that support uh, future, uh, future professionals who would be in, in the field. And it kind of started, it started out with him starting the National Association of Radio Announcers, um, which became the National Association of Television and Radio Announcers, you know, when it was appropriate. Um, and he kind of, he his intention was to really uh, to support black announcers, and um, it was made up of you know some of the most influential DJs uh, during that time. Um, and then in 1963, he moved on to uh, Motown Records. Um, he was in public relations for Motown Records. Um, he had some similar similar gigs at some different um, record producers, and after that, he uh, in 1976 he turned his attention to more commentary. Um, he started writing a newsletter that was called Mellow Yellow, and that was a publication where he started to use the term Jack the Rapper, and. You know, just in a reference of time, you know, Jack the Rapper, you know, that was so, you know, right around the uh, first beginnings of what would have been considered like potentially the first hip hop um, or spoken word um, type movement. Um, you know, 1969 it was pretty early on, but. You know, that's not, Jack the Rapper is not 
and reference, direct reference to that, but, you know, culturally you can see, you know, how things are evolving, naturally evolving into uh, what would soon become the early forms of hip-hop slash rap. Um, so he used, he used his uh, platform or his newsletter to, uh, you know, he's really outspoken about a lot of issues that he saw um, in black radio. Of course, you know, coming up and being a pioneer of his time, you know, he experienced a lot of things, saw a lot of things, and as we talked about with Al Benson, um, you know, later in his career, uh, the industry was kind of, you know, really, you know, throwing around its power as far as influence, influencing what was played on the radio, um, as, you know, black music became more popular, you know, other major labels were stepping in. And so, you know, Jack the Rapper's concerns were just about how do we preserve black music? How do we preserve, you know, black radio? And so he, he uh, commented a lot, uh, criticized a lot of the, the industry, including, you know, black record companies and artists, because he thought, saw infiltration and change there as well. Um, so he's pretty um, outspoken about that as far as how he it was a little bit more black and white. In other words, as far as how he thought, um, you know, the black music industry should be operated um, in order to preserve things. And you know, which is uh, I think during the times, you know, you know this is uh, right in the heart of the civil rights movement. So. You know, there's a push to, you know, advance um, uh, black Americans economically and socially. And I think, you know, for him, um, being heavily tied in the civil rights movement, you know, there is, uh, you know, there are various, of course, um, uh, segments who believed different things about how to achieve this. and. Um, you know, in, in his uh, view, it was more about pr preservation and keeping things intact and, you know, um, allowing uh, white professionals to come into the into the, the black space was going to result into in similar ways that we've, that they saw, you know, when other in other instances where, um, um, you know, white um, white people with money came into the scene and kind of slowly uh, changed the landscape and you know which was already happening and I think um, not only that but his concerns about just with in specific to black record companies even the independent small black record companies and how they use their language like he did not like when uh, people would refer to black radio as urban radio because um, he felt that you know just was a umbrella term that didn't really speak to, you know, what black radio represented um, historically and what should represent. So that was, that was him. He was, you know, outspoken throughout his career. And then in 1977 was when he uh, first began hosting uh, the first uh, family affair convention, which you may or may not have heard of since, uh, you know, it, uh, existed into fairly recent, which is as in recent as in the 90s. Um, and so the convention started off as a gathering of, uh, you know, just professionals in the field, 
Um, he wanted it to be like a place where um, people could network, um, where people who were interested in getting into uh, black radio or black entertainment could um, attend seminars. Um, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of uh, people will say that the convention was more or less always kind of a party atmosphere, but um, it was definitely uh, it was definitely intended to be a place where people were able to kind of get educated, get, get support, um, and enter the career or enter the field. Um, but as time went on, it definitely became kind of uh, it kind of become a little, came a little conflated as far as uh, you know it being just a convention and a party because it just it really grew and grew um, you know you have eventually you have hip-hop hip-hop coming in and bringing in that new wave of uh, of um, musicians and entertainers and professionals so it just kept growing and growing and uh, you know eventually live performances were happening and um, and uh, you know just it, it became a place where a lot of people were just trying to, newer acts were trying to, you know, get, it was a, you know, rare opportunity where they were able to directly engage with some of the established um, stars and successful uh, producers and entertainers in the field. Um, so it was an important place for, where younger acts could get validated, um, but some of the growth was not, you know, it was not consistent with the uh, convention's, you know, initial goals, and eventually, you know, that became a became an issue, um, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but in 1987, um, Jack the Rapper uh, got word of uh, Jackie Wilson that Jackie Wilson was buried in an um, unmarked grave, and we'll talk about Jackie Wilson later in the timeline. But it's just something to note as we're kind of going through his his life. Um, so uh, it was um, a pretty big deal at the time. Um, they found this out because Jackie Wilson, of course, a legend. Um, so they started a fundraiser um, and they were able to build a, a nice uh, proper gravesite for him and I believe Jackie Wilson's mother. Um, And that's a theme that um, I'll probably talk about more with Jackie Wilson is there were a number of early black artists that were placed in, uh, there were some unmarked graves and I think to some degree, it's not unexpected, I don't think, or a surprise just because of the way, uh, you know, some of these artists were, you know, may or may not have gained popularity, mainstream popularity, but they definitely I think it's pretty well um, documented and well known that these artists were not compensated in a way um, that was comparable to other people in the industry. Um, so on the so uh, so yeah. So now we're talking about back to the family affair. Um, so now at this point, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, hip hop is you know growing and growing, and so that brought in, you know, new attendees to the convention and, um, you know, there were just rising issues um, that were happening just because within hip-hop, especially early hip-hop, hip -hop, there were sort of factions, you know, and 
different record companies had beef with other record companies you know that was part of the culture and you know certain areas of hip-hop and so they were having issues of vandalism and some fights um, you know and so a lot of the hosts of the convention um, it was originally being hosted in Atlanta and um, you know people are just getting concerned and so when the, some of these fights and some of these issues came up you know the hosts were starting to get really um, iffy and I think they were also just iffy about kind of the overall general rep reputation that some uh, some of hip-hop had as far as you know bringing in you know unwanted trouble you know just looking at some of the concerts and stuff um, so you know how valid that was was kind of a non-issue because um, you know, stuff was happening at the convention, and eventually, you know, they they did move it to uh, Miami. Um, I know specifically there was like a it was between Death Row Records and Skywalker Records. Um, there was kind of a, a beef there that apparently spilled over at one of the conventions, and that was kind of one of the landmark situations that kind of marked the slow uh, decline, or you know, kind of marked. It, the writing was on the wall at that point where the convention was going to only be a lot around for so long, but they attempted to move it to, to Orlando at a different location where, you know, there was less concern. Um, but I think it was in 1996, 1997, you know, things were just getting a little bit too, too rough and rowdy. And so that was uh, when the Family Affair convention, unfortunately, um, ceased to exist. Um, but, you know, as you can see, you know, we're talking about all the way into the 90s, late 90s, um, for a guy that was part of the early days of uh, black, ra uh, black radio, you know, Joseph, da Joseph Dayton Gibson Jr., you know, he uh, really spanned across and helped influence and proliferate, you know, a number of artists and genres along the way and really influenced and impacted the industry. and. Um, I think it, it really speaks, you know, when you talk about all of the black DJs um, from, you know, basically Al Benson, Nat D. Williams, and um, Jack the Rapper, you get into um, not only the popularization of the R&B and uh, black music at the time, but you also get into what were the foundations of rap because, um, you know, we already talked a little bit about the speaking style of black DJs and kind of just the flow and kind of just, you know, really building up, you know, basically what the MC was at the time. And, you know, if you think about what the MC became at uh, hip hop concerts, you know, there's a lot of similarity there. I um, mean, you know, the style kind of gets extended. But, you know, even if you're just talking about rap and hip hop, um, there were, you know, of course, there were rapping DJs um, early on, um, or you can say spoken word DJs, however you want to phrase it. Um, but another factor was that um, for WRD in Atlanta, and of course, when more specifically when Jack the Rapper was in Miami. Um, so the Miami uh, airwaves, um, specifically at night when the uh, when the um, Um, specifically at night, the airways were more open, 
and and um, I think you you were required to have a special license to broadcast at night, and so there were you know limited stations that were um, broadcasting at night, and so um, at, during those times um, the air you know the stations could be picked up further away, and so um, you could people in the Caribbean could uh, hear um, what Jackie, Jackie Jack was playing um, and some of those stations were playing and that was um, one of the main ways that um, you know music was transferred to the Caribbean and just hearing you know, the DJs and whatnot was a, a big influence on the Caribbean of course you know for those of you that know um, you know that was a uh, many people who uh, came from the Caribbean were um, heavy creators in um, the sound of hip-hop so so um, yeah black DJs black radio was a big influence in multiple ways in the evolution of, of music um, for sure and something that um, I think you know people definitely give credit for um, especially when you think about the DJs closer up to hip-hop just you know just thinking about uh, a lot of the people who were DJs and this acquired, you know, like an 808 or a, a mixer and were um, making tracks that way and kind of just transferred straight from a sort of DJ into being a uh, hip hop MC. Um, but also uh, just the style, you know the distrib distribution of music that hadn't been heard so a wider audience and you know influencing future musicians and future DJs and uh, you know taking that up and you know further further evolving uh, further evolving the craft and you know, evolve you know, revolutionizing you know American music um, so it's uh, you know they get credit but I think sometimes people just don't go far enough back and really consider it consider the evolution and to see how, to see the totality of the impact that um, black radio and radio DJs had on, on hip-hop and rap. So those are all the DJs, um, at least formally speaking, are on the timeline. Um, next on the timeline is Rudy Toombs and so now we're really um, in the heart of R&B. Um, you know we're in the in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s and so when you listen to music written by Rudy Toombs or some of these later artists um, it's pretty clearly R&B although you know some of them kind of border on uh, rock and roll and some of them are really blues so once again still murky but you can definitely hear that you know it's a where you know it's kind of a fall from jump blues at least or moved on from jump blues, I should say.
Uh, so Rudy Toombs uh, grew up in Harlem. Um, he was a tap dancer in the 1930s, and he, you know, he tried his hand at different uh, performing uh, roles. Um, and eventually, he decided to become a songwriter, which was, you know, the right move with it for him. I think uh, he became like a very prof prolific uh, songwriter. He has like over like 200 songs um, in uh, that you know that have been documented that he was written. Um, but specifically, um, he was included in the timeline um, because of his work with Ruth Brown. Um, he wrote. Um, Teardrops from My Eyes, which was a very well-known, famous um, song by Ruth Brown, and also early R&B, um, top of the charts, and he also wrote 5, 10, 15 Hours, which was also one of uh, Ruth Brown's early hits. Um, he wrote some other songs um, that were, plenty of songs that were hits. Um, one interesting thing is he wrote uh, One Mint, uh, what is it called, One Mint Julep, Julep? Uh, he wrote that song for the Clovers, and, you know, 5, 10, 15 hours um, was released in 1952, and that song was also released in 1952, and the only reason that both songs, uh, the only reason One Mint uh, wasn't number one on the charts was because 5, 10, 15 hours was at the number one spot, so he would have potentially had, you know, two number one spots uh, in 1952 and so that kind of just shows uh, how prolific of a songwriter he was. Um, so he wrote more songs for the Clovers, he also wrote for uh, a number of artists, um, he wrote for uh, some hits for Louis Jordan, uh, The Five Keys, Joe Turner, Freddie King, Little Willie John, um, so you know he's Probably one of the um, one of the greater songwriters uh, in the history, especially during this time. Um, doesn't really get heard a lot. Um, you know, Ruth Brown is very well known, and we'll talk about her in a second. Um, but as far as Rudy Toombs, you know, I think you know, I think a lot of times, of course, songwriters kind of get pushed in the background. But um, the reason he was on this timeline was just because of uh, you know his kind of background influence on a number of artists uh, in the R&B genre, specifically uh, Ruth Brown. Um, and unfortunately, you know, he, uh, in 1962, he was, um, he was in Harlem and he got mugged and beaten, got beat up at the time and the injuries, uh, he had got brain damage and, you know, he died shortly after. So his career was also cut short, unfortunately. Um, so um, even though Ruth Brown is, I guess, technically, she's on the timeline, she's mentioned, um, you know, as the singer of Rudy Toombs songs on the timeline. Um, and as I've said before, I try to give, you know, as much credit to the songwriters as possible and people who, you know, really uh, kind of were at the foundation of some of these genres and musical styles. Uh, you know, it's not always the case, um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the reason it was Ruth Brown is because Ruth Brown is, you know, one of the, you know, best uh, singers, you know, in, in history, and um, 
she also had an influence after uh, her music career as well. Um, so I'm not going to get too much into Ruth Brown's history, but you know, I, I couldn't just uh, mention Rudy Tunes without mentioning and going over Ruth Brown. Um, and she, her background was in, uh, she was singing uh, spirituals, um, that's where she started out. Um, and she was a, a balladeer. Um, you know, she was one of the most popular R&B artists in the 1950s. Um, of course, I said as as I said before, Reed Toomes wrote her songs "Tear from Tears from My Eyes" in five, ten, fifteen hours, which were her some of her first hits. Not necessarily her biggest hits, but some of her her first hits. And um, you know, big R&B artist. And as things kind of shifted a little bit more to rock and roll, she kind of transitioned a little bit more to like a a pop like swing roll and continued her career um, for a while there um, and um, specifically one thing a famous quote from um, Ruth Brown was because if you listen to some of her songs um, they really sound like rock and roll um, you could definitely make the argument that they are very rock and roll-esque and I think when you listen to a number of R&B songs during that time period, it's hard to differentiate them between rock and roll. Like if someone called it rock and roll, you probably wouldn't disagree, especially if you are listening to modern R&B. Like if you take a modern modern, modern R&B song, you know, from like the 90s or later, or even the 80s or later, and you compare it to a Ruth Brown song and you say, you know, does this sound more like rock and roll or R&B? I think pe a lot of people would choose rock and roll. You know, but that's it's up for debate, but um, something to consider. Um, but one of her famous her famous quotes, um, she was asked by a journalist, you know, when did uh, rhythm and blues become rock and roll? And she said, when the white kids started dancing to it. And that statement, I think, is something that kind of reflects the music industry through the the entire span, um, just because as we talked about with uh, the genres, you know, the genres kind of evolved as, you know, they became, the marketing was appropriate. And so, you know, the rock and roll genre kind of evolved and shifted and became a complete, completely separate genre as the market seemed appropriate. Um, and not necessarily by uh, style, even though, you know, I think there's no doubt that, you know, as rock and roll evolved, it has a clear delineated style. And of course, we have all these subgenres of rock that are clearly rock. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a, an important quote just to consider, like, socially and culturally. And just kind of taking, when you take a step back and look at, you know, the timeline and the music, it kind of, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, from her perspective. Um, and then in the 1980s, she, uh, she got into a legal suit with, uh, with Atlantic Records to try to get some of her royalties back. Um, Atlantic Records, of course, was where she released most of her, her biggest hits um, in the 1950s. And, you know, this was kind of a, a general theme. It's, you know, a lot of 
musicians, you know, pre-1950s especially, um, you know, they were just trying to um, break into the industry, um, especially with some of the backgrounds, if you're coming from um, impoverished backgrounds or, you know, you know where our situation, where this is make or break, you know, this is, you know, really your only avenue for where you, you can get some sort of, you know, economic success. You know, a lot of these uh, musicians were just more or less being taken advantage of, um, you know, at very least they were not being paid as you would pay a mainstream artist. Um, so it was a big issue for a lot of black musicians and it was kind of a landmark case for Ruth Brown to um, successfully take on Atlantic Records to get some of her royalties back even though, you know, it's I think it's pretty um, consensus that she didn't get enough but it was a is a win regardless and that um, battle and some of the money um, related to it, uh, there was seed money related to that uh, 1.5 million that allowed her to help start the Rhythm and Blues Foundation which was to support some of the older musicians who had been around and kind of gone through the same thing and it was also to provide uh, you know just general um, financial um, support and basic benefits for just you know artists from the present you know moving forward um, so that was uh, you know a contribution by her after you know her music career um, but you know that's really Ruth Brown in a nutshell you know like I said I don't get don't get too in depth with her um, but um, you know her music will be uh, on the timeline as well and you know just listening through her whole um, music catalog you know she's uh, one of the one of the better vocalists of uh, in music history uh, next and last on the timeline for this episode at least um, is Raleigh B King um, also known as BB King um, he was born in Mississippi and he, his parents were sharecroppers. Um, when he was young, um, five years old, B.B. Um, King's mother uh, moved away with uh, B.B. With King to um, the Delta region of Mississippi. And during that time, he was you know, um, exposed to uh, a lot of uh, religious uh, community, faith-based communities. Um, spirituals and so that was kind of an early musical influence um, his uncle um, reportedly uh, played guitar at a church while he preached um, so that would have been early exposure to guitar um, and so when B.B. King's num mom was uh, sorry when B.B. King was around 10 his mother passed away and as legend has it, um, you know, I've heard some, I haven't really heard anything specifically, uh, many sources specific, specifically speaking about this portion of his life. It's not that there's conflicting stories, but supposedly, you know, when his mother died when he was 10, he basically lived alone on, in their cabin on the plantation for a few years. Um, 
until he was able to, he was working on the plantation a little bit as well, until he had enough money to get a guitar, and at that point, um, he was able to uh, learn from his, his cousin Bucko White, and, uh, for, you know, almost a year, and then, you know, he went on to play on street corners and, you know, small gigs, until he was able to get, you know, substantial work, um, and once he moved to Memphis, after a while, he was able to, um, work for, uh, WDIA, which was where Nat D. Williams, um, was working, as I kind of mentioned before, and when he first got there, he was, it was really just to play, um, live on-air covers, um, he would have, like, a 10-minute spot, he'd be able to play, and eventually, uh, they hired him as a DJ, and that was where he got the name, uh, Beale Street Blues Boy, which was shortened to Blues Boy, or B.B. King. And in the 1950s, he, uh, signed with Modern Records, um, his cover, uh, Three O'Clock Blues, um, which was originally, um, written by Lowell, uh, Folson. Um, that was kind of his first hit, brought him some uh, a lot of recognition. And from there on, you know, continued to record a lot of other hit songs. Um, and in 1969, he uh, recorded a hit, uh, The Thrill's Gone, which was originally written by Roy Hawkins. And um, Roy Hawkins was actually um, at the same label. Um, so he actually uh, was aware of the original Thrill's Gone. If you listen to the original by Roy Hawkins, it's pretty much a, kind of a standard um, slow blues um, song. And of course, B.B. King's song is uh, a lot more produced and it's a little bit more up-tempo and of course modern with B.B.'s, uh, B.B. King's modern uh, playing style. Um, and it's interesting that he Cover at 3 o'clock blues by Lowell Fulson because you know Lowell Fulson you know along with like T-Bone Walker was uh, they were like some of the primary um, originators of like the West Coast blues style which was uh, pretty electric blues focused so you know you can definitely see the influence and you can see how he was you know kind of picking out these songs um, you know BB King had a really good uh, way of um, you know taking covers or making really successful covers um, of previously released songs. Um, some of them were hits, some of them were not. Um, and of course, other piece of him was just his playing style. Um, I know I heard uh, in an interview with uh, Buddy Guy, you know, Buddy Guy really credits B.B. King with, um, with bending, st string bending, um, and utilizing that, and, you know, lieu of uh, slide, essentially, um, or just, you know, as a style of playing um, within the electric blues, uh, which I don't know. I think I don't know if he's necessarily the first person to do that. Um, I think you know he's definitely probably one of the more prolific person to do it or uh, really to lean in on it. Um, you know, I'm not really familiar with where specifically. I know I know I've heard artists before B.B. King do it, but I don't know, you know, there's so much crossover, I don't know who, who was actually the first person 
to really, really implement that fully into their style. But, you know, that's definitely one thing that stands out in BB King style. Um, and, of course, another thing that always stands out is his, uh, is a very, um, distinct tenor voice, a really good voice, and, um, and that kind of also set him apart. So that is B.B. Uh, King, and um, that's about it for this episode. Um, as always, um, thanks for listening. Um, keep tuning in. Um, at this point, we're, I guess we're about uh, almost halfway through the timeline and, you know, continue to delve into some of these R&B and, you know, kind of transforming from R&B to rock and roll. Um, I think, you know, I think as we started this episode talking about R&B, it's interesting because you look at Ruth Brown, Ruth Bound, her songs could be uh, pretty much uh, categorized as rock and roll, or some of them at least. And with B.B. King, of course, he's an electric blues, um, uh, electric blues guy. And so, you know, but his hits would have been released on the R&B charts. So, you know, it's just, you know, I think it kind of plays into how we started the episode. It's just, you know, interesting to think about, I guess. Um, I don't know how much it matters, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but um, it kind of shows, uh, you know, why these, why these uh, different points were highlighted on the timeline. And it's just food for thought, really, as we continue to to discuss some of these different artists and the genres they played and, you know, how they were categorized and the entire evolution of uh, blues, R&B, rock and roll, funk, and hip-hop. Uh, so tune in next time. Um, you know, I think it's... You know, we're getting closer and closer. You know, some of these individuals uh, lived on until recently. You know, I think B.B. King is one of the few people on the timeline you know, during this time period that I, I was able to see live, so, you know, it's interesting over the scope, you know, and that evolution of, of music, how recent it kind of feels as you kind of go, off, go over all, all this timeline, you know, the 1920s and the beginning of blues might feel a long time ago, but as you kind of, you know, look at the evolution and see, you know, when these individuals are born and when they passed away and how some of them are still around and how the influence and network and you know the the this timeline kind of is made up of a you know pretty closely related community you know like everyone kind of may have worked or influenced each other you know if not directly you know they were able to directly witness them you know see them live so uh, you know kind of really puts it all in perspective you know it seems like a long time ago but you know in a lot of ways it's very recent so thanks for tuning in um, I'll see you all next time um, until then take care